Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I have an amazing person in the beach shack, Sam White. Now she tells a story from her early days growing up through domestic violence and how tough it was as a child, into becoming an entrepreneur with many businesses throughout her career, recently launched her company Stella, which is with car insurance in Australia, which is targeted towards women And a percentage of that goes to domestic violence for women. She talks about her challenging period in her career and also when she made her first million and the time during COVID where she thought she would lose everything. The best part about Sam is she always makes sure she gives back to the community. Now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Sam. This week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure to have Sam White. Now, she is a car insurance tycoon, and it's a pleasure <laughs> to have her in and uh, and have a chat about her life and the way she started a successful business. Uh, Sam, how are you? Thanks for having me on, Hoppo. I love that, tycoon. I'll, I'll, <laughs> definitely, uh, I'll definitely keep that. Might be a bit of a stretch, but I'll keep it anyway. <laughs> Well, you, you were born in the uh, UK and grew up there. So we'll start with your childhood. You had a, a bit of a tough upbringing. Yeah, yeah. So my mum, unfortunately, she lost a, a lot of family members when I was very young. So she lost a dad and a mum within a sort of couple of year period. And I think it took her from being a heavy drinker into being a dysfunctional alcoholic so she was she was a bit of a disaster really from me being nine ten years old I I kind of you know you know when they say you you dragged yourself up I was kind of left to my own devices my dad worked pretty hard wasn't around much um and my mum was you know passed out or or generally causing some kind of chaos most of the time so I, I, yeah, I, I, I think it has positives and negatives. I always say, like, it's an interesting one. A lot of entrepreneurs that I meet have had challenges in childhood. But also, I'm, I'm interested in this concept of the sort of lack of boundaries that I had as a child. Because, you know, when you have a safe childhood, that comes with a lot of restrictions on you as well. And those restrictions sometimes, I think, in later life can form part of the restrictions that you impose on yourself. And I didn't have any of that because it was, you know, I was feral. <laughs> <laughs> so, which is probably why me and, it's probably why me and Emma, your, your, yeah. our mutual friend, um, get on as well as we do because <laughs> I think we, we probably got that, that similar nature. <laughs> so what was it like growing up though? So you could, as you were saying, you could go and do what you wanted to do and, and you sort of basically looked after yourself for a, a period there. 
Yeah, so I mean, I I think I naturally have a bit of an anti-establishment or it depends how you want to describe it. Um, I I was always curious as a kid. Um, I got kicked out of Sunday school after one one lesson when I was about (laughs) six or seven. So I think I, I may have come out this way to a degree just because I was asking what they deemed to be inappropriate questions, but what I thought was was totally reasonable. I, you know, I don't know if you ever, I don't know if you play this in Australia, but there was a game called British Bulldog that we used to play a lot in the school ground. And basically the game was that... Yeah, we used to play. You, yeah, you run from one side of the wall to the other. And the, like, I think the civilised version is that they tag you. And the uncivilised version is that they have to drag you back to the other wall and then the more people that get on board, it's like two against one, three against one, whatever. And I was always the last person they'd have a crack at because I would just plow my way through every single one of them um, because I was getting to that. I was getting to that other side of the wall. So I, you know, I think that instinct, that desire to just keep going and push through, I, I, I think it's been with me from from quite a young age. And I think that was cemented with the the challenges with mum. She also used to do really embarrassing stuff to me as a kid, which, again, I now say, you can't embarrass me. It's like it is impossible to embarrass me because after you've had a parent kind of ritually humiliate you in front of all of your friends, we, we, we had a house opposite the school growing up. And my mum used to like sports cars and she used to buy some really nice sports cars with the the money she inherited after her her parents died but she'd do stuff like she'd she she would get drunk and and drive the cars which I would always try and stop her from doing for obvious reasons (laughs) but um she had a, a TVR sports car that used to if it got wet it wouldn't work so she put a blanket over the engine area to stop it from getting wet so it 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 would work and then completely forgot that the blanket was on and drove the car down the road which set on fire so you can imagine and my house was exactly opposite the school this drunken lunatic with flat you know flames shooting out the bonnet of the car driving past and all my friends being like oh look there's sam's mum so there was <laughs> there was a litany of those kinds of sets of circumstances growing up, which have led to my ability to be completely free of shame in pretty much every set of circumstances. So then into the teenage years, did, did that affect you, what happened when you were younger, or you were a bit more street smart because you, you understood a, a bit more worldly? So I think it was worse in my teenage years than any other period of time because being a teenager is mm. tough. you got, you know, your hormones and... Yeah, you're dating and, and and probably at the time, some of the things that were really embarrassing probably hit me harder during those years than than I, you know, kind of came out of, of the other side as. And I think, you know, she she got progressively worse throughout my teenage years. And eventually my, my dad left and my sister left and I was still living in the house with her. And that was quite problematic because obviously in the circumstance that she was in she wasn't necessarily making sure that we were safe in a lot of um a a, a lot of environments 
And to your point, yeah, I probably was quite street smart, but also you think you're more capable of handling things than you actually are when you're younger, yeah. don't you? You know, so I, I, and probably I did get myself into some sets of circumstance that I probably shouldn't have done or that were more risky than, than could have been because I had this inflated sense of I'm, I'm an adult. I've been adulting myself for the last 10 years and therefore I can handle this. But of course, I had no idea how to be an adult because you're supposed to get taught that stuff from your parents. And that was, you know, that was, was kind of lacking. But I, you know, I used to wash cars to make money to go out with drinking with my friends at the weekend. And I'd go around the neighborhood and kind of persuade people to let us wash the cars to make a bit of cash. And I, I was always entrepreneurial in that regard I, I bought a car when I was 13 14 with some money that I'd inherited and then I did it up in the garage my dad helped me with with, with that and I kind of tidied the car up and then sold it for a profit so mm. there was always like there was always little bits of stuff like that going on in the background that that I'd like to say kept me out of trouble so when did you learn to drive I actually learned to drive. So my dad used to let me steer the car sat on his knee at sort of eight years old when we used to have a, we used to go out to Spain quite a bit when I was younger. They had a house over there. But I, I actually learned how to drive properly when I was 13 in, within this car that I'd bought and was doing up. My dad used to take me to B&Q car parks when he had time off at the weekend and we'd we'd drive around the car park attempting not to run anyone over or do any damage because clearly we wouldn't be insured at that point. But apparently it was totally legal because you're allowed to be in, at that time you were allowed to be in spaces that were, I think was it privately owned yeah. and, there, and then the insurance bit didn't count. Anyway, I, um, I learned to drive a, a stick shift and didn't kill my dad, so we were good. <laughs> well, too, it's not many kids these days can drive the... Uh the uh, manual it's uh pretty much all automatic these days but that's no fun like i love a i love a manual car i mean i've got an automatic now because i've got kids and you know it's hard enough trying to keep keep focus with them screaming in the background and asking for 10 things every every five minutes but um i do love a manual car Mm. i love the experience of driving a manual car now i've had loads of like really unusual and exotic cars over the years Mm. And mostly if you're going to get a sports car, I just don't see the point in getting an automatic. Now, you were you successful at school or do you think starting a business, it was something, as you mentioned before, maybe it was already built in? Yeah, so I was dyslexic as a kid, which took them a few years to pick up on. So to start with, I did very badly at school when I was really, really young because obviously as somebody with dyslexia, I, I wasn't able to read the question. So... The, the reading was a challenge. You you write backwards as well, which is <laughs> equally <laughs> a challenge. But I, I got special help at a certain point and managed to pull that round. And then I, I did okay. So as soon as they unlocked the sort of dyslexia challenges, I did sort of shoot from bottom group and everything to top group. But I there were certain subjects that I just really didn't enjoy, but also at a fundamental level, couldn't understand why I was doing it. So I used to get very frustrated with maths because the answers were in the back of the book. 
I'm like, why are you asking me to do something that you already have the answer to? This is stupid. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't get my head round. Like, why am I having to do this? Like, I can use a calculator, I can do X. So there was always that sort of pushback in certain subjects that I felt like you were just asking me to reiterate somebody else's opinions, which just didn't make sense to me. And I certainly didn't enjoy it. Whereas something like English literature, where we got to read books and poems and have an opinion about it and, and reflect on stuff, like, I love that. And I'd, as a result of that, I, I, I did okay with those kind of subjects. But um, I definitely wouldn't say that I was an academic by any stretch. And I, I did my GCSEs, did pretty well with them. I got some A-levels, went to university. But I, I did two years of my degree and then left because the situation became completely untenable at home with my mom, And I just needed to get out and make some money. So when did the business start, your first one that you kicked off? Yeah, so I started my first company when I was 24. I did have a job before that so after I left university I got a job working for a motor claims company did really well got like promoted and promoted ended up on a lot of money for me well for anyone at at that time I was on sort of £50,000 a year which is probably about $100,000 and had a company car and you know all the all this good stuff at, at quite a young age but the environment didn't really suit me and I wasn't taking particularly good care of myself I was massively overweight and smoking and you know eating way too many takeaways and going out partying and and using that money um in ways that probably weren't helping me and and I ended up suffering quite badly with panic attacks and you know having some some real sort of negative side effects of the fact that I wasn't really well balanced at, at, at that stage and then I would say sort of three things happened in quick succession in that I, I broke my leg on a night out with some some mates having a water water fight in the kitchen at three o'clock in the morning, which wasn't probably the smartest thing I could have done. I split up with my boyfriend and I'm now married to a woman. So that clearly was the right decision for, for me at the time. And then my mum overdosed. And so I think all of those things happening in quick succession kind of made me go you need to do something different and and for me that was just about having freedom and flexibility and being able to be in control of my own destiny and so I set my first company up at 24 but it 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 wasn't you know a really well planned out executed thing it was just can I make some money so that I don't have to work for somebody else and let's see how that kind of goes. So how did at that period how did you deal with that mentally you, you know you said you, you you got divorced but then your your sexuality was something that you had to come to terms with as well and like a lot of listeners and younger people have this problem and they don't really want to talk about it and I think that um by speaking about it it really helps a lot of people and how, how did you find that back then 
Yeah, so I didn't, I, and I still don't know exactly what the main cause of the panic attacks were. I should imagine it was a combination of a lot of different things. You know, the childhood trauma, the fact that I wasn't taking care of myself physically, but undoubtedly the, um, the, the, the fact that I clearly was gay but living a straight life will have had an impact as well on my, my psychology and and my anxiety levels. And I, I think that that's, that's, as you say, it's probably true of quite a lot of people and they feel some level of shame or... There's an association with challenges like panic attacks with weakness. Like, well, you must be weak if if you, um, you're having these issues. And I, I think that that's absolute nonsense. I, I know I'm, I'm not weak. I'm, you know, I'm incredibly resilient and I went through a lot of stuff. But your body will tell you when you are on the wrong path and, and you can cling on as tightly as you want and you can try and, you know, work through it or push through it or whatever, but it will it will still be there. And, you know, anybody that's suffered with panic attacks, and, I, you know, I've got a few friends that have been unfortunate enough to have them over the years, know just how de- debilitating they are. You know, it's not something that you can just ignore and that you can just get through. It's they're they're really really horrific, and it took me a good ten years to get over them. I mean, I I don't suffer with them at all now, but it, it you know I made a lot of changes to my lifestyle and and I che- I you know I changed the direction of of travel for me um, quite substantially. I think the sexuality thing is an interesting one because it's not like I spent my childhood years or my teenage years thinking I wasn't living the experience that I should be. I had lots of boyfriends. I had great relationships with them. There wasn't like something at that point that was really obvious to me that I shouldn't be dating guys. I just started to recognize in my 20s that I was forming attractions to women that were beyond the sort of normal emotional attraction that you might have to another human being. And eventually, like with most of these things in life, it it became too loud for me to ignore any further. And I had to make a decision as to whether I wanted to live a life with unresolved questions or I wanted to just bite the bullet and, and see where it took me. And it, it, you know, in the end, it was a lot less scary than I thought it was going to be. And and again, I think that's that's you know that's probably true for most people. I know some people have horrific experiences of coming out, and I'm you know it's heartbreaking for me that that is the scenario. But I, I most people that I know, and certainly my experience, whilst they may have some negativities, I think. The, the, the people that love you, that truly love you and, you know, people in life that are worth having anything to do with will not have any kind of issue around it whatsoever because fundamentally it doesn't affect them. Now, your business you went into is car insurance. Why car insurance? <laughs> I know, it's terrible, isn't it? It's just not sexy. And then I've got, you know, I've got, I've got mates that have got really exciting, sexy businesses like Emma's business, and I go into car insurance. Um, you know, here's the thing. Uh, car, uh, financial services is incredibly male-dominated and uh, and the exact opposite probably of what anybody would expect me to be doing. 
And I kind of love it for that. Like you can't innovate or change a sector that's already, you know, sexy and interesting and, and what have you. But you can you can you can absolutely go in and make a huge amount of changes to industries that aren't used to people like me being in them and are you know aren't expecting you know a gay female leader to decide that she wants to launch a, an insurance product specifically for women and I kind of like that that's you know that's kind of fun for me there's no you, there's no point disrupting something that's already been disrupted so is that the point of difference it's it's mainly targeted for women so Stella, yeah, which is live in Australia and will be live in the UK later this year. I've got other businesses in the UK that that, that target all sorts of different demographics, but my my passion project is definitely Stella, and it's a it's an insurance product. And here's the thing: we'd love for you to get insured with us, assuming that you're a good driver, Hoppo. But <laughs> it's you know we we do insure we do insure men, but we didn't design the product for them. And my, my, my point on this is there's plenty of other things that have been designed for men that women use quite successfully every day of the week and twice on Sundays. I could run off a litany of things that have been designed with men in mind, from pianos to medicines to, you know, seat belts. You know, all of these things have actually been designed by men for men. And, and what I said is I'm going to design this insurance product for women, by women, in terms of the the product design and features, the experience they have. So, you know, we, we took out all of the unnecessary questions that are just data collection because we know that that specifically annoys women more, <laughs> more than men. We added extra baby cover into the product. We made our marketing kind of funny and irreverent and, and, and empowering for, for women. But we've also committed to support other women and and our our support comes in many different ways in terms of the the expert series that we run with you know different types of women that have, are experts in their own areas so racing car drivers and financial experts etc but we also give five dollars from every policy that we sell to women and girls emergency center which helps victims of domestic abuse because for us it's about really putting our money where our mouth is and saying, if we are a brand that is specifically designed for women, then we need to show women that we genuinely have their back and that we are, we are all in it together. So how long have you had it now in Australia? You launched it not long ago? It's about 18 months ago. So we, we launched literally in the midst of COVID. So we were, due, we were due to go live the May, you know, all the lockdowns hit March, I think, 2020. And we were due to go live in the May. And my investors were sort of, maybe we should park it and just see how this goes. And my gut was... I, we don't know when we're going to get out. We might as well just get the ship out of the harbour and just see how we how we roll with it. So we actually ended up launching in July 2020. And it's been phenomenal. And the support from our community and our customers has, has, has just been absolutely incredible. I've been, I've been blown away. And the team that I've got in, in Sydney are just unbelievably good. It's, um, it's, it's a pleasure to be involved in the project. 
And how long does it take to set that up, the business? You'd have to find people to work, you know, out of Australia and, and you just oversee it from uh, over there in the UK? Yeah, so like I often say I am like a genuinely my, my sort of skill set is that entrepreneurial founder role. And there was a couple of years prior to go live in Australia where it was important for me to get all of the right partners um, together. So getting an insurance partner to, to provide capacity. So Stella's backed by QBE insurance in in australia and you know we um had discussions with various different insurers before that to 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 land with those guys did a media uh, partnership deal with with bauer media which has been incredible for the brand to kind of get it out there and and get that that awareness of who we are and, and what we are and i got a local investment partner as well and that was all kind of those are all the sort of steps involved prior to 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 launch and then the, I, I started interviewing people for the role of general manager over there. And eventually my investment partners recommended um, a woman, Renee Cosgrove, who, who um, is a general manager over in Sydney, who they'd worked with previously. And me and Renee had a telephone call, which went really well. Um, and it made me laugh because the VC said they'd put loads of stuff in front of her. And she'd said, no, no, no. And then she just really loved the purpose behind Stella and everything we wanted to do. And then I flew her um, actually over to the UK and she she moved in with me and my family for a week. And we just really got on like a house on fire. She's a great girl, uh, very much like Emma Sale, that yeah. sort of go-getter, um, girl's girl. And, and yeah, we just um, we just ended up really kind of connecting on the goals of the business and what to do and and she she runs things locally we have loads of video calls like this actually I think COVID probably helped in that everybody got so well every everyone was on a video call so it kind of didn't matter whether I was in the UK or I was in Australia and now the borders have opened up again I can get over regularly so I was over in March I'm coming back in June like so I can come over every few months and uh check things out so i'm definitely taking you out for a pint next time i'm over yeah definitely have to have a pint for sure <laughs> you call it a pint or do you call it something else well, we, 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 it's funny you know we, we have we call it schooners yeah yeah, yeah but yeah. we do have pints as well and uh, the, the pint's a bit bigger than a schooner a schooner's a, a little bit smaller i know you a pint drinker or a schooner drinker hopper oh a bit of both i don't mind a pint <laughs> i drank plenty of pints when i was in Plenty of pints when I was in the UK. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. <laughs> now, you said you're going to start that. Now, you started in Australia first with Stella, then you're going to now launch it in the UK. Do you think it'll have the same success as what Australia has? Absolutely, because, you know, my, my fundamental belief is that we are not talking to women properly in the financial services sector and that they appreciate it when you do and they appreciate brands that don't just talk the talk they walk the walk and I've already I mean this weekend actually I, I did a 10k for the charity partner that we've chosen to support when we launch in the UK which is a charity called Fly Anyway run by again an incredible woman who herself was a victim of domestic abuse and ended up homeless and living in a car with her two kids and then just completely turned it all around, set up this um, business called Be Inspired where she 
um, supports women uh, who are uh, learning how to publicly speak and to kind of find the voices and the confidence. And then she set up Fly Anyway as a sort of give back. Um, and Fly Anyway is um, something that helps women who have come out of domestic abuse situations and want to launch their own businesses. And she's got ambassadors on one side, web- website builders, accountants, etc. Um, she project manages stuff and then the, the charity will help support women launch their own companies. And I, I love that. Like, I, I think, you know, allowing people the opportunity to get out of these situations and become fully independent and, and that financial freedom that's so important for women in those situations, I think, is is absolutely critical. And that's one thing I think is fantastic that you you give back to the community through your businesses. Yeah, I mean it's a core part of sort of why why we exist for me. There's there's business is great, and you know I I readily say I'm terrible with money, so I need to make a lot of it because I'm just absolutely useless with it. It, it flows through me. I find it very difficult to hang on to it. But aside from that, I, I want to build businesses that my kids would be proud of you know I, I, I don't want to look back at the end and and sort of go all right I made a lot, a lot of money I spent a lot of money but there's nothing really to show for it because because you can't take it with you when you go and so having a, a a sort of core purpose behind any business that I, I I start that allows it to sort of have that sort of circular give back for me is 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 really important and I think anybody that comes to work for the organization it's probably one of the main driving factors that they would choose us is that they get to be part of something that's that's bigger than just themselves and and you hope that that flows through to the customers as well that they also feel like you know we say it sounds cheesy but one of our taglines at Stella is turning a grudge purchase into a vote for a better world and, you know, car insurance, boring sector, you know, we joke about it. If somebody asks you, what do you do at parties? And you say insurance, there's not going to be any follow-up questions. It's not, it's, it's not a great market area. But when somebody buys their insurance, if they know in doing so that they're, they're doing a bit of good at the same time, then, you know, I, I, I personally think that that's a, that's a, that's a nice model. Now, your first million, was that a major milestone when you finally cracked that one million mark? Somebody asked me this recently, and you know what? It kind of went almost unnoticed by me at the time because it was fairly early on in the in the journey for me. And I remember at the end of the year, because you just don't really, my accountant kind of going, oh, you know, you've you've spilled over this 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 mark. And I guess it was like, it was almost surreal. And I think for a number of years, my experience with success and, and money was very surreal. And I think even now, I don't really think about it a lot. It's something that other people have a judgment on. But I know how easily it can all get lost. I've nearly lost my businesses a number of times. During COVID, we had some really, really difficult times where I wasn't sure if we were going to make it through with with some of the UK companies. And so I know that it's transient and that, it, you, you know, I've had times where I've been incredibly successful and times where I've, you know, where I've, I've really nearly hit rock bottom. And so it, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a moot point 
It's like, you know, when I was young and single, you go out some nights and everybody, you know, you're getting loads of traction and people are chatting to you and there's, you know, and you go out other nights and people don't want to have anything to do with you. So I, I, I kind of I <laughs> think business is the same. You can be, you know, you can be unbelievably successful one minute and not and not the next. And you should never, you should never really take anything for granted. I saw, I don't know if you saw Robert De Niro's Don like a like one of these little mini videos recently and he was saying just keep calm if you're doing well <laughs> keep calm if you're doing badly keep calm because the one thing you know is that the bad is going to come back in and the good's going to come back in it's the bit in the middle where you've got to just kind of hold everything together it's a great point because a lot of young people see successful people, and especially with social media these days, everyone's putting up how great they're going. It's all, you know, unbelievable. But behind the scenes, they don't realise that you can be successful, but it can all be taken away quite quick and you can hit rock bottom. Absolutely. And that, you know, if your identity is completely locked into how successful you are, then you won't just lose the money, you'll lose all sense of self. And I, I think the first time I nearly lost everything, that really hit home for me. And ever since then, I've just, I've never taken anything for granted, but I also don't allow myself to hit too hard when things are difficult because it's not who I am. It's just what I do. Well, you said you a lot of money comes and goes. What do you like spending your money on? Um, so now, when I was younger, I did all of the stupid stuff. So I had all the sports cars and the watches and the designer clothes and, you know, all that stuff that you do when you first start making money and you think that you're really important when clearly you're not. Um, now, for me, it's all it's all about experiences. I, I will spend a lot of money on a night out with friends or on a holiday or, you know, I do like traveling well. So, I you know, I will travel business class or first if I'm if I'm doing well but it's always has to be about some kind of experience as opposed to some kind of thing are there any other you're doing the insurance now is there anything else in the future that you would like to start as a business god loads I mean you know we joke about it in the team that I'd start 10 companies a day if they allowed me to I mean, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm hoping to exit um, a number of the UK businesses, um, or, or certainly a, a, a majority of, of my equity in a number of the UK businesses this year. That's the plan, and then to carry on pushing forward with Stella. But I'm, I'm hoping at that point that I get to invest in other female entrepreneurs and help kind of support other women launch businesses that. I can see there's there's a need for and there's a passion for and I, I would like to take as I get as I get older I would like to take more of that kind of angel investor um, mentor role rather than doing all of the, the the do myself and and kind of driving the business forward. So out of your career, what do you find the most challenging that you've had within your career? The most challenging experience. Yeah. It was probably the first time I nearly lost the business because I, I you know, I was riding very, very high in that I, um, you know, was making millions of pounds profit, living in Beverly Hills. 
I'd got this, you know, this incredible lifestyle and it, and I hadn't suffered any failures at, at that point. Everything had just increased and increased and increased. And so the first time I nearly lost all of the businesses, which was in 2013, there was a lot of regulatory changes and I lost 60% of the income lines in a four-week period, was probably the most challenging for me. One, because I hadn't been through it before. And two, the, the drop was was a big drop from where it was to where it then had to start up again um, a few months later. And you did mention it later. You did have when we were having a chat uh, earlier on, you did live in LA and there's some good stories in your time there. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it was a mad, mad experience and, and indicative of my sort of mindset at the time of, yeah, sure, I'll just kind of pack up my bags and, and move to Beverly Hills and I won't just move to Beverly Hills, I'll, I'll, I'll get a place on Mulholland Estates, which is like the estate in Beverly Hills. And I... You know, I was three doors down from Charlie Sheen and it was during that period of time he was under house arrest for all the nonsense that he was getting up to. So there was sort of constant like like um, news helicopters flying over the house and people being shipped in and out and Slash lived on the estate, uh, Tom Jones, Paris Hilton, Robbie Williams... At the time, I actually was was getting married, and I asked Robbie. Uh, I sent him a letter, uh, like, "I'm only I'm only a few doors down. Girl from Manchester, you're from Stoke. You know, basically, can you do me a solid and come down and sing a song at the wedding?" And bless him, he did, <laughs> which was just like the most amazing, surreal experience. And we ended up hanging out a few times after that. Really, really lovely guy, and and such an incredible thing to do to do that for somebody um, on the wedding day. But that that was the sort of madness that, that happened because that's where I was at the time. And, you know, that those are the kind of experiences that, that can occur. And you're saying it's pretty much nobody sort of left. People just came in and then but everyone sort of stayed within that area. Yeah, so it was it was interesting. I do think the more money people get, sometimes the more locked in they can become. And, you know, these houses were insane. They were like 20,000, 30,000 feet square and beautiful. But what happened during that period of time that I'd started to notice is that because you've got all this money and, you know, you're in this amazing environment, people tended to have people come in to them. But stuff that you would not expect, like, you know, stylists would turn up with clothes and, you know, you you would end up uh, like everything came to your house. And I, I never really subscribed to that because, I'm I, you know, I like to get out and about and see where I'm. So I used to leave the estate and go um, and I was trying to set up another company over there at the, at the time. So I'd be driving around and going to appointments and what have you. And the security guards, I remember him saying to me once because I became quite friendly with them. I actually invited them in on, on Christmas Day once and cooked them a chilli and they were they were lovely guys. And they said, you know, you're the only person that actually really leaves the estate. <laughs> I was like, that's, that's bizarre. That is like a marble, you know, marble prison really when you think about it. Do you think that's where the, the loneliness comes? That These people have got millions and millions of dollars, but they're basically on their own. I think... 
the, the, pro, the loneliness comes from the fear. So, you know, the more successful people get, I think the more other, and I'm not even sure it is other people, but certainly there's a feeling that other people are watching them more. And, you know, I guess if you're an actor or a singer or whatever, then that's, that's going to be true. But there becomes a pressure to be the person that other people think you are. And there becomes a fear of being taken advantage of, which I, I witnessed. And I was over in LA a couple of weeks ago and it's still there. It's probably even worse now is that there's this, it's, it's a very cutthroat environment and these people are really, really successful. So then there's a fear that other people are going to try and take from them or take advantage. And it's easy to create those walls around yourself where you go, well, I'm going to keep everybody else out then because I'm not safe to engage with them. And, and I should imagine it doesn't take too many ne negative experiences for that to be a self-fulfilling prophecy and people to kind of get back into that cycle. But I, I, I love the expression, nobody's watching or nobody cares. Like, and whether that's true or not, it's something that I tell myself on a daily basis, which allows me not to get too caught up into any of that nonsense. Like, because most people are focused very much on their own lives and not on your lives, it, even if you do have a degree of success. I think keeping that as a constant reminder allows you to live freely. But I can see completely how hard it is to do that and and to really kind of relinquish yourself into the universe in that way and not get that got get caught up in those kind of patterns well sam it's uh great having a chat it's uh i think it'll um be very interesting for the listeners they've uh you know what you've done with your businesses and uh also throughout your life i think that's uh been very entertaining now at the end of the interview I've got uh, five fun facts and I'll throw some questions at you and you can answer them however you want and uh, we see what we come up with. Sounds good to me. So what song do you have to sing along with when you hear it? Uh, that would have to be Use Me by Bill Withers. I don't know if you know that one. It's a great one. It's an oldie but a good one. Yeah, no, I haven't. I haven't heard that one. What are the best and worst purchases you have ever made? Uh, so best purchase would probably be my gym equipment. Love exercising and it took me a while to get into it, but it's, it is my absolute saviour these days. And the worst purchase would probably be TVR Tuscan, which is an absolutely beautiful car but unfortunately is made of fiberglass and when it gets wet it short circuits and you can't get into it so it, it was a extremely expensive driveway ornament that just sat on the drive and would only start one in three times because of it best thing about london soho soho nightlife there's there's a couple of drag bars in soho that are an absolute joy and every time I'm down there, I uh, try and get a, a night out in the town there. Yeah, I must say, I've had a few nights out there when I've been over in, in uh, the UK. Yeah, it's fantastic. Uh, what's your biggest screw-up in the kitchen? Oh, this is a good one and still makes my wife laugh. Um, I offered to cook for the kids <laughs> and they wanted hot dogs 
And I assumed that the hot dogs were boiling the bag and they were not boiling the bag. And I threw them into the boiling pan in the plastic packet, which melted all over the hot dogs and made it completely <laughs> untenable. Yeah, they wouldn't have been happy about that. No, they weren't. Uh, that was Domino's night. <laughs> Tell me a time you failed and what you learned from it. God, I fail every day. And and actually, I'm I'm kind of like... I I try to treat success and failure completely equally these days. But I think to the point of the conversation earlier, the worst failure I probably had was was when the business really hit that hard time in, in 2013. And I think what I learned from it is that you can come through anything. There's always a solution. You just gotta kinda keep going but also not to take anything for granted. Well, Sam, great answers. And uh, where can people, can they go online and and look up Stella if they want to uh, get some car insurance? Absolutely. Stella is, uh, it's on price comparison sites. So it's on compare the market as well. So you'll see us pop up there. But if you want to come direct to us, then stellarinsurance.com.au come get a quote. It's very quick. We made the journey quick for a reason and hopefully you'll decide to, uh, to to come on board with us. But if you want to check me out or reach out or have a combo, LinkedIn is probably uh, the, 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 the best platform for me. It's where I'm most active. So Sam White, Freedom Services Group on LinkedIn um, and Stellar Insurance. Well, Sam, it's uh, great to have you in the beach shack and I'll uh, definitely hit you up for that point when you're out here in Australia. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. Okay, this week's letter from the mailbag. It's not a question. It's actually something sent through, which I was quite proud of, and I want to uh, read this message out because I think it's, This is why I do the podcast and it's great to hear we've saved someone's life and no different to doing that in the ocean, but we're now doing it on land and there's many, many people out there in the same position. This came through from Anne and I'll read out what she wrote. I wanted to stop in and tell you how much I appreciate your work. I have been going through a pretty tough time in the last 12 months and was absolutely floundering drinking too much, treating my family horribly and heading down a pretty dark road. One sleepless night several months ago, I found Bondi Rescue Clip and I was hooked. I have spent many sleepless nights catching up on all the episodes. Then I found your podcast. I watch and listen nearly every day. I was inspired to take one tiny step towards changing my circumstances. I got into an exercise routine. The effect on my brain was almost immediate. Then I changed my diet. I started to feel better. And because of all your amazing guests and openness about mental health, I decided I needed professional help. I still have some things to work through, but I have lost 20 pounds. My husband says I look better than I have in 20 years. My mind is clear. I am working on setting some goals, making better decisions. Those dark clouds have lifted. Who knew the boys in blue 
elite athletes from halfway around the world would save a 55-year-old woman from the high desert of Colorado, whose nearest ocean is 1,000 miles away. And when I say save, I mean you may as well have pulled me out of 10-foot surf. There are so many times on the show that one of the lifeguards says, oh, that was so close. Yes, it was. Keep up the amazing work. You are making a difference. And now, and that's a um, very, very uh, nice message. And I am very uh, proud of what you've done just from listening to the podcast, listening to the people's stories, getting in. We all talk about it and it does make a difference. So, and uh, thanks a lot and uh, continue on your journey to success. Thanks everyone for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.